Hi, this is Pastor Jim. Thanks for joining us for this week's message from Riverside Church. I believe you will be inspired and blessed by the Word of God. I would love to welcome you to one of our services next time you're in the Brisbane area. If you'd like to know more about us, go online at www.riversidecc.org.au or like us on Facebook to hear about up-and-coming events. I hope you enjoy the message. God bless you. Good morning. Well, it's good that we are back here and uh, getting into the Word. Tucked away almost modestly in the Old Testament is a tiny book of four chapters. Hardly ever heard of, uh, usually uh, skipped by preachers, usually, but not always. We're talking about the book of Ruth. And this morning, I'll attempt, I'll do my best, to collapse all four chapters into 39 and a half minutes. And we'll see what happens. On the surface, this book of Ruth sounds like a book of romance, does it not? We're talking about a Gentile woman, a widow. She lost her husband. And uh, she meets an honorable, wealthy man, a Jew, gets married, and lives happily ever after. What a wonderful story. But is this all there is to it? And all of you, I know, I know, all of you, all of you would say, no, there is something more. Well, yes, there is something more. Ruth, the book of Ruth, is a type. In other words, a picture, a symbol of something to come. Ruth is a picture or a foreshadowing of what God can do and does do to grieving, sorrowing humanity. That's what the book of Ruth is about. When I was a young believer not too long ago, I heard another young fellow muttered these words, take the book of Ruth out of the Bible, you'll get a ruthless Bible. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. It's never left me since them days ago. Uh, so today we're going to take an excursion to the land of Israel. And I'll give a short narrative regarding this story. And I'll give you three lessons that we can learn from the book of Ruth. So here we go, the narrative, the story. We'll kick in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. 
there was a famine. And so this family, a young family, decided to migrate 80 kilometers eastwards, crossing the Jordan River eastwards into Moab. Just 80K. But in those days, 80 kilometers is an arduous task. We keep on reading Ruth chapter 1, verse 3. But, the first negative in this book, which foretells misery to come. But, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took, these two sons, took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived about ten, they lived there about ten years, and both Marlon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left, the woman Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. Whilst in Moab, Naomi lost everything, kind of. She heard news back from Judah, Bethlehem. The famine has ended. There's bountiful harvest. So this, she decides, I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go back where I have been familiar with. She tells her intentions to, uh, she shares her intentions with her two daughters-in-law. But they were insistent. They say, we're going to come with you. Mom-in-law, we're going to come with you. But uh, after a while, Opa, one of them, said, all right, since you insist, I'll go back to my people. I'll go back to my country. But Ruth clung on. The Bible says she clung on to Naomi, refusing to budge. I will go wherever you go. Your God will be my God. So arriving back in Bethlehem, Naomi and Ruth caused a stir in town. Who is this? Is this Naomi? It's been 10 years. Look at her. And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. See, Naomi means pleasant or sweet. Sweet. Mara means bitter. Life has been absolutely bitter for me. Don't call me sweet. Now, God had put in place, 400 years before this, the law of Moses for Israel to, to adhere to. When they harvest their fields, they were not to pick up stalks of grain that had accidentally fallen down onto the ground. And they were not to harvest the, the corners of their, their fields. There is this term called gleaning. The, the reapers would come with their sickles and they'll get the, the harvest, but some would drop. And, and the droppings, so to speak, okay, would be picked up by gleaners, people who follow from the back to take up the bits, the odds and ends. This was Israel's um, welfare program, if you like. There was no Centrelink or things like that. So no one would be poor. They could gather grain and make bread. So Ruth, on returning to Bethlehem, 
And on hearing about the law of Moses from, obviously, Naomi, she said, let me go out and glean. Let me get some welfare from this state, legitly, because she had to work. So let me go. And as she went, she happened to go, to go into the field belonging to a man, a wealthy man called Boaz, who accidentally, or not providentially, I should say, was a kinsman or a, a close relative. When you, when you go into hospital for surgery, when you do a will, you're asked, who is your next of kin? You've got to fill in. That's your closest relative. That's my kin, my next of kin, my closest. So, Boaz was a kinsman of Elimelech, Naomi's late husband. And so Ruth goes in, without knowing all of these things, she gleans and gleans, and on that first day, she gleaned an ab abundant harvest. And she said, I'm going to stay in this field. So for weeks on end, she did that. Naomi, meanwhile, had suddenly discovered the field that Ruth went into actually belonged to a, a close relative of Elimelech, my late husband. And a plan starts to develop in her mind. And so she said to Ruth, go tonight to the threshing floor. Why the threshing floor? Because, you see, during the barley season, or barley harvesting season, the, the winds from the Mediterranean would blow in, and they are fairly strong winds. And so it's perfect for winnowing, where stalks of grain, that had been ground and, and stepped upon, either by hand or by oxen, would be taken up by the spadefuls, pitchforks and whatever, thrown into the air and whatever chaff would be blown away, whatever good and the grain would fall into the ground. They winnow it that way. And so two reasons why Boaz would be there. Boaz was involved in, with winnowing his his grain. And also, because thieves would come at night, it's perfect to steal grain. And so he would be there to be on guard, obviously with some other uh, helpers sleeping across his field, we think. N Ruth comes along and Naomi says, you go near to the man and you ask him, place the border or place the corner of your garment over me, because that's a sign of protection. That's a sign of redeem me. Rede I am a destitute widow. Come to my aid. Well, even the psalmist, you know, we quote that psalm, Psalm 91, uh, under the shadow of the Almighty, we, we rest. Well, we, we, we see this phrase, under his wings, we find refuge. We ask the Lord, spread the corner of your wings over me. That's another way of saying, be a Boaz to me. Now, the Lord of Moses states this. When a man, a married man, dies childless, without children, then the brother of that dead man is to step in and, and marry his widow and bear children for the dead man, not for him, the first son born out of that 
new marriage would be considered the son of the dead man. And so um, Ruth asks Boaz, do this for my late husband Marlon. Do this for him. Boaz agrees. See, even if there is no brother, the nearest kinsman can take up that responsibility. And so Boaz says, I will marry you. I will spread the corner of my garment over you. And so Ruth becomes Mrs. Boaz. And from there on, we have the rest of the story. Now, the book of Ruth, in my view, there are three main lessons that we can learn from, that we can learn. Firstly, lesson number one, God's redeeming grace is ever-present, no matter how hopeless it seems. God's redeeming grace is never absent, ever, ever present, no matter how bleak, how hopeless it seems. These events that we read, that I shared just five minutes ago, took place roughly about 1100 to 1200 BC. We're talking about a thousand years before Jesus Christ. Those were dark days. Those were lawless days because the Bible tells us in the days when the judges ruled. This happened in the days of the judges. They were lawless days because the last verse in the book of Judges, Judges 21 verse 19, 21 verse 25, I'm sorry, it says this, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what he, what he liked. There was no king. Lawlessness. Well, for example, we have this last tragic story in the book of Judges. A man from Levi and his concubine travels through the tribe of Benjamin. That night, that concubine was gang-raped by the men of Benjamin in Gibeah. The next morning, she was found dead at the door. The man, the Levi, the Levite, took his concubine back home, cut her up into 12 pieces. You, you know this story. I'm just repeating what you know. Cut up his dead concubine into 12 pieces and sent one piece to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And this was so obnoxious to the entire nation of Israel, they gathered together to annihilate Benjamin, which was almost destroyed, leaving only 600 men. But that's another story. So in those days, there was lawlessness, utter depravity and lawlessness. That's the time of Ruth. That's the time of Boaz. Those were the days. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what they desired, what they liked. There was lawlessness, and on top of that, there was famine. There was famine, no food, so much. So Do you know Jews were not allowed, not even encouraged, 
to go to in intermingle with people of another race. But this, this family went. They were so deprived, they left for Moab. The names of their two sons, Malon. Malon means sickly. That's Malon's name, sickly. Chilion. Chilion means wasting away. Both similar names. Well, Naomi and Ruth were soon to, flow, were soon to face one devastating blow after another. Blow upon blow of unimaginable sorrow. Elimelech, the patriarch of that family, dies. Then his death was followed by sickly and wasting away. Both the sons died. So what you have left, three women in that extended family, no men. You know, hopelessness comes in many forms. They do. Sickness, poverty, abandonment, hopelessness. For some, life held great promise for us when we were young. And as time rolled by, you find all you see is setback after setback after setback. Hopelessness. I had someone ring me up just recently, a couple of months ago, like that. Time has caught up. He was getting old, not in this congregation, not even in this country. But hopeless, hopeless, hopeless. And then for others, you've prayed for years and years for a, for a loved one, wayward, left God, and your prayers have not been answered. Hopelessness. Look at the book of, look at the book of Ruth. Look at the book of Ruth. This was a bunch of hopeless women, helpless women, bereft, destitute, and yet God stepped in. God stepped in. You may think, oh, God turned sorrow into joy only for some significant people, but not me. I'm not significant. Look at Ruth. Just look at Ruth. The book of Ruth, there were no kings. In the entire book, there were no generals. In that entire book, there were no prophets. There were no, there were no leaders. There were no warriors. Just ordinary folk who had to toil in the sun, long hours, and work hard. Ordinary folk who, who had more misfortune than celebration. Ordinary folk who, who suffered illness and bereavement. That's the book of Ruth. You know, this book just shows us this. God provides for those who have nothing. And God cares for those who are weak and broken and hurting. God does. God simply does. He does. Look at Ruth. She was a Moabite. You know what's a Moabite? People from Moab were the descendants of that incestuous relationship between Lot and her daughter. These were people who were totally hopeless, helpless, useless. We would say, in our day and age, look at these people. 
products of incest. Yet it seems when there is no hope, God steps in. For those who are far off, someone like this Moabite, Ruth, finds relationship with God. Look, look at this, Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. This, if you like, could be considered the key verse in the entire four chapters of Ruth. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. This is speaking to the mother-in-law. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people, the Hebrews, shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. That last phrase is important. There I will be buried. That means no turning back. No going back to Moab. I'm going to stay with you and die with you in Israel. Matthew chapter 1 records the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You know, through Ruth and Boaz, there came a son. This son was now the son of Malon and Elimelech. Boaz and Ruth had a son called Obed. Obed got married, had a son called Jesse. Jesse got married, had a son called David. And from David, you have the line going through all the way to Joseph, who married Mary, from whom we have the Messiah. From such hopelessness, we find redeeming grace. From a Moabite, oh, it's not just from a Moabite, even from a Canaanite, one of Boaz's ancestors, either mother or grandmother or great-grandmother, one of Boaz's ancestors is a Canaanite woman by the name of Rahab. You might say, what hope is there with a Canaanite, those far-off Gentiles, Gentile dogs? We heard a week or so ago, Gentile dogs, what hope have we with them? And, and a prostitute, what hope? You know, God is at work. The house of bread, which is Bethlehem, became breadless. There was no more bread, so they migrate. Now, bread has been restored back to the house of Bethlehem because the Son of God was born in Bethlehem to become the bread of life for all. There is hope for everyone, for people who declare, your God will be my God, like Rahab. Rahab would have said to Joshua, your God, I have heard and we tremble. Your God is my God. And now Ruth says, your God is my God to Naomi, her mother-in-law. That's the first lesson. God's redeeming grace is ever-present, no matter how hopeless it seems. Ever-present. Second thing, second thing we learn from the book of Ruth, God's means of redemption or God's means of bringing hope is through a kinsman redeemer. That's the only way. There, there is no other way. There is only one hope 
and it's through a kinsman redeemer who is, this is important, who is selflessly concerned and focused on us. That's who he is. At a time when Naomi, Naomi and Ruth were facing the deepest despair and, and depression, suddenly a wealthy man walks into the pages of the Bible. His name, Boaz. In Ruth chapter 2, verse 1, we read this of him. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Boaz, his name means strong, worthy, mighty, character. Now, there are a few things about Boaz. Here we go. Godly. He was godly. He was a godly man. Ruth chapter 2, verse 4. Look, whenever he starts work in his field and whenever he meets his laborers, he would say this. The Lord be with you. And they answered him. The Lord bless you. So the Lord was central in his work, in his, in his everything, in his world. The second thing about Boaz, he was sensitive to those in need. Ruth chapter 2, verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, whose woman is this? Now, there is nothing romantic about this. Ruth was a young woman. Boaz, according to the Jewish uh, commentators, this is not in the Bible, but Jewish commentators said Boaz was a man who was 80 years of age at that stage. There's nothing romantic about this. He was a caring man. He was a man who was sensitive to the needs of others. If you go through the book of Ruth, you'll find that Boaz is a type, is a symbol and a picture of the Lord Jesus to us. That's who he is. Boaz was sensitive to those in need selflessly so. He was selflessly focused on them. Jesus came later on to fulfill exactly what Boaz did. But Jesus fulfilled the law even more than what the law required. And Boaz did more than, than what the law required. Boaz did that. Just like Jesus did more than the law required. Look at what Boaz did. He gave comforting words of welcome. Don't glean elsewhere, but stay with the young women. You don't need to tell this to the gleaners. You own this, this field. The reapers have come with their sickles. They've gone. At the back comes the gleaners. You don't care about them because they've, they've got what they need. But here, Boaz is doing more than he needed to. Stay with the young women. Don't go anywhere else. Next slide. If you're thirsty, there are water jugs. Go refresh yourself. You know, when the gleaners come, if they're thirsty, they've got to drop everything, walk five kilometers to the nearest well, draw water, walk back five kilometers, come back to continue on with their work. That's in the olden days. That's in the olden days. There are no water bottles. There are no pipe water. But Boaz says, if you're thirsty, 
there are water jugs, there are pitchers, go help yourself. And more than that, at meal times, he said, here are some roasted grain if you are hungry. A landowner need not do this to any gleaner. The gleanings is help enough. Boaz did more than what he needed to do. Lastly, he instructed his harvesters to on purpose drop stalks of grain for Ruth to glean. I mean, what kind of Boaz is this? Jesus. Jesus does more than what we need. Jesus does more than what the law requires. We heard earlier, Boaz agrees to become the kinsman redeemer. But you know, this is no easy task because it'll cost you. It costs to become a kinsman redeemer. The child born out of that new marriage becomes Marlon's son. Elimelech's son. This is so that, so that Marlon's name would be retained in Israel. The name will not disappear. And Marlon's inheritance, every Jewish man receives an inheritance through the distribution of land from, from God. And so if a man dies child, sonless, childless, then his inheritance dies with him. And so it is no easy task for Boaz because he would be reducing his own assets. He would have to apportion his, his, his wealth with Marlon, carve up his assets and part it away. But he did. This is the reason why there was even, there was a even nearer kinsman redeemer than Boaz. And that man refused. Why? It costs me. It costs me. Doesn't Boaz remind us of, reminds us of Jesus? That doesn't he remind us of Jesus? Look, Philippians chapter 2 tells us, for though he was, for, he was in the form of God, he refused. He refused to count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Paul tells us, though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes. He had to pay a price. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did to pay for our sins. Now, there is one word that will aptly describe Boaz. It is this Jewish word, hesed. H-E-S-E-D. That's it, hesed. This word is so difficult to translate, and that's why our English translations have, we, we have a multitude of words to represent hesed, and not one of them is accurate enough. The most accurate is loving kindness, because it combines love and kindness. But there are words like mercy, kindness, goodness, and, and so on. This is a unique word. It means this, kindness that is motivated by faithfulness to honor promises previously made. God will honor that promise of kindness to you and I because he had made those promises earlier and he'll keep those promises. That's hesed. 
That's hesed kindness. Ruth chapter 20, uh, Ruth chapter 2, verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he, Boaz, may Boaz be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness, that's the word, whose hesed has not forsaken the living or the dead. His hesed has not forsaken Marlon and Elimelech, that's Boaz. You know, that faithfulness to honor promises made for our welfare. There are 250 occurrences of that word hesed in the Old Testament. So many times God reminds us, I've made promises to you. I intend to keep every single one of them and therefore your welfare. Look, look at this, Genesis chapter 39, verse 21. Look at this. This is Hesed in the life of Joseph. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. See, this is another translation. Steadfast love, which is Hesed, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. All right. God had made promises to Joseph. You will be top dog. You will be honored. But this time he's in the pit of the prison. And God says, I'll be with you. I am with you. I'll show you favor. My hesed has not left you. That is God keeping his promise. One thing about Jewish words, you know, their words are verbs, a lot of them. The root, the root of their words are verbs, active words. For example, food, it's a noun to us. It's food. But to the Jews, food is something, its root is to eat, to eat. It's an activity. Love, to us, it's an abstract emotion. It's an idea. It's even something sentimental. But pretty and sentimental. To, to, to the Jews, to lo love is to give. It's an activity. Give. Hesed is similar. It is an emotion of God that causes him to be engaged in activity of welfare giving. Giving us welfare all the time. Look, Adam and Eve fell. They were hiding from God. The first thing, God comes with his has said, comes looking for them, active, activity, hunting down, not that he needs to, he knows where they were, but looking, come looking and looking active. That's has said. Do you have that sort of a kinsman redeemer? You need him. You need a kinsman redeemer. Will you say with Ruth, your God will be my God. Where you lodge, where you stay, where you live, where you go. I'll be there. You know, that term, kinsman redeemer, can be defined in this way. I haven't got it up there, but I'll read it to you here. A kinsman redeemer is one really close to you who compensates for your losses by paying a price. That's Boaz. And that's Jesus the Christ to us. The kinsman redeemer or its equivalent occurs 
23 times in the four chapters of Ruth alone. I think God is sending us a message that he is indeed a Hesed God who keeps his promise and he redeems us. Three, the third lesson, God's goal in redemption is to unite his son with a bride, the bride of Christ, who is selflessly focused on him. That, that's his goal. God's goal in redeeming us is to unite his son with a bride who is selflessly focused on him. When she walked into the pages of the Bible, Ruth was a destitute, despairing widow. Absolutely nothing. She came from an idolatrous society, Moab. You know, the god, the chief god of the Moabites is Chemosh, or Chemosh. Chemosh was the god who, t who accepts, only accepts infants as sacrifice. You see an, ad an idol, a tall idol with outstretched arms, burning hands, and they would put infants on the hands to burn them alive as sacrifice to Chemosh so that you'll get blessings of victory in warfare and blessings of bountiful harvest. The Moabites thrived on idolatry. Idolatry essentially is this, one short little word, me. A man or a woman sets up an idol because they want to derive blessings from that idol for me. That's idolatry. In, in fact, you can, you can mispronounce idolatry by saying idol of me. Idolatry is idol of me. That's essentially what it is. There were two daughters-in-law for, for Naomi, Ruth and Opa. They both were very, very similar, except for one thing, one very significant and important thing. Both very similar. Ruth and Opa, both of them came from Moab. Both were born in an idolatrous society. Both were exposed to Chemosh. Both married Jewish young men. Both married sickly and weak and fragile Jews. Both, had, both experienced widowhood when they were young. Both resolved to follow their mother-in-law back to Israel. But upon Naomi's urging, Opa finally said, all right, mother-in-law, she kissed her with tears, goodbye, and she departed and went back to idolatry. That's what she did. Back to the... She... She... She still wanted to serve me. That's what Opa's life is all about. At the end of it all, she, she was still concerned with me. Ruth was different. Ruth, Ruth, as we said earlier, said this, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Uh, where you 
etc. Where you lodge, where your people will be my people, and your God, my God. And where I, where you die, there I will die. I will be buried. She totally cut off idolatry from her life. She said, "It's now no longer me in the land of Moab. It's now all about him. No longer me, but him." Ruth models what the church should be for us. Ruth models that to us. This is how our conduct is to be: to be selflessly focused on Him. No more me. Well, look at Ruth. Look at Ruth and see how selflessly focused on Him was she. She was loyal and faithful. Do not entreat me. Do not urge me to leave you. Totally loyal, total faithfulness to Naomi, and then she was diligent. She labored all day in the hot sun, gleaning, working hard, diligent. That's what the church should be. That's what a Christian should be. That's what the bride of Christ should be. I know it's hard, but that's that's what Ruth modeled for us. Be a servant. It costs to serve. Serve. Sacrificial. Look, she was sacrificial. She cared for Naomi. What a liability! A lot of the young women today would say of a mother-in-law. Why should I be saddled with her? But sacrificial, and separated. Look at Ruth three verse ten. These are the these are the words of Boaz back to Ruth. He said, "May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last hesed." This last kindness—that's Hesed. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not set, you have not gone after young men. We're talking about an 80-year-old Jewish man, all right? You have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor, but you have agreed to marry me, an old man, wealthy, albeit. She was separated. She was. Separated from the young men, so to speak, and and the pursuits of what is natural to to a young woman. Isn't this to be our focus too? And lastly, look at this: she laboured in Boaz's field, and that's our job as well. We need to be focused on the harvest field, wherever we may be. Wherever we go, the book of Ruth, four chapters. Our time is up. Firstly, it teaches us three lessons. Firstly, God's redeeming grace is ever present, no matter how hopeless it seems. Always, God's grace is there. You know, even the psalmist says, "No, no." The psalmist who who wrote Psalm 42, as a heart pants for the for the running waters, so pants my heart for you. You know, later on he says this. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you depressed? We go through this all the time, don't we? Don't you? We do. So God's redeeming grace is ever present. Let's be mindful of that. The second thing, God's means of redemption is always through a kinsman redeemer. Do you have Him? 
do you have him? And the third thing, God's goal in redemption is to unite his son with a bride who would be selflessly focused on him. No more me, but him. Can I ask us to stand if you can? We're going to pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. We, we thank you that you are such a wonderful kinsman redeemer. Lord, you are far greater than Boaz. Good as he was, you are far, far greater. You are far, far wealthier. You are far, far kinder. You're such a lovely God, Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you. Lord, may we live our days ever mindful that you are with us. Your hesed will never depart from us because you have promised and your hesed is an active, an active kindness toward us. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray if there be anyone who is struggling at this moment, you would meet their needs, whether it is bereavement, sickness, financial struggle, a personal struggle. Lord, you know where they are. I ask, Lord, that you would meet their needs. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening today. I hope you subscribe to the podcast so you can be inspired weekly. God bless and have a great day.